Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Dr. Suzanne Wertheim, linguistic anthropologist and CEO and founder of Worthwhile Research and Consulting. We talked to Suzanne about her experience of transitioning from academia to the business space as a linguistic anthropologist. Along this journey, she shares how her expertise in linguistic anthropology contributed to tackling implicit and day-to-day exposure to bias prevalent not only in product development, but also within organizations as a whole. She warns that these built-in biases can normalize a certain type of bias to the wider public of products and services and suggests a structural approach to create a more inclusive and safe environment for the process of product and organizational development. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here tonight with Suzanne Wertheim, CEO and founder of Worthwhile Research and Consulting. Hi Suzanne. Hi Corina. I'm very excited to have you with us um, today, speaking to one of the topics that um, have have recently really caught my interest, which is um, linguistics and anthropology. So before we start uh, diving into your specific work, I'd like you to tell us more about you. What what has your career path been so far with um, technology, language and research? Sure. Um, And even before that, let me preface by saying that I'm really excited to be a part of this podcast. One thing is I I think back to my younger self and I do a lot of mentorship now and I'm the mentor that I never had. And I'm going to spend maybe a little more time talking about my path to where I am today than I I might for a different kind of podcast. But I Mm -hmm. feel like my path was kind of circuitous. But when I look back, it all makes sense. And I've kind of, I'm bringing everything together. So I'm just going to spend a little bit of time talking about a little more. I, I have the sentence summary, and I'm going to actually give you a little bit more of sure. an unpacked version. So sure. so my undergrad was in English Lit. Uh, I was pretty sure I was going to go to grad school for that. And then when I was filling out applications, I was like, oh, I cannot do this. It was a very postmodernist moment. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, I understand that I'm a much more data-driven person. Um, I really liked English Lit. I was being groomed in that, and then it wasn't, it wasn't going to be the right path for me. So I had to make money, pay off student loans, do things. So I moved to Boston because it was a cool city with a good music scene and I didn't need a car. And I graduated in a recession and I was like, well, better to live someplace good. There weren't going to be great job opportunities anyway. And I ended up in the very emergent financial technology sector over in Boston, Boston, one of the main technology centers in the U.S. still. And first I was in sales and marketing, and then I was a tech writer. So I was always on the very languagey things. But tech kind of drove me out the way it still does for a lot of women. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm a little bit jumping ahead, but now that I research and consult on bias at work, especially in tech, I retrospectively have reanalyzed my own personal experiences. And I thought they were maybe about just me. And now I see that they were very much about systematic patterns of bias, right? Mm-hmm. So when I was in financial technology as a, a young woman, short, I am technically white, but I look very Latina. 
I was mistaken for the receptionist. I was groped. I didn't have any mentorship. I didn't have any career velocity. Mm-hmm. And, and I think most insulting to me was that even though as a tech writer, I had this really deep knowledge about the product and what it was like to be a user of the product, nobody seemed to listen to what I had to say. People didn't seem to care. And I thought, I don't want to spend my life with people not caring about my good ideas and not listening to me. So what should I do? I know I'll get a PhD. And I ended up getting it in linguistics, which I had gotten into. I was interacting a lot with human-made languages. And it started me thinking about how much cooler brains were than computers. Sorry, computers. <laughs> and uh, and how much cooler human language was than human-made language was. So I moved across the country to UC Berkeley. I... Uh, got really interested in historical linguistics and endangered languages. California used to have around 150 languages pre-contact. It's down to not many. Mm -hmm. And one of my advisors was really working on language revitalization, and I found it fascinating. So for my dissertation, I decided I would look at a very, you might think of it as a technical or grammatical question, which was when you've got two languages in contact, um, and in the U.S., (laughs) They tend to be immigrant languages, but for most of the world, they tend to be not that way. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a minority language and a dominant language, why is it that the minority language changes grammatically a lot and the dominant language changes only a little? And I decided to go to Russia, post-Soviet Russia, to figure this out, work with a large minority group called the Tatars. Mm -hmm. And this is what brought me to culture and to linguistic anthropology, because I was looking at a very grammatical sort of abstract question. It had been treated very abstractly. And what my dissertation research showed me and the dissertation showed other people was that there was no way to remove language, linguistic patterns, linguistic behaviors from the people who were doing the speaking and writing Mm -hmm. and the context that they moved in. Mm -hmm. Um, So this really fundamentally changed how I viewed language, how I viewed the world, how I viewed everyday interactions, because I saw that you couldn't look at a conversation in a kitchen without thinking about the larger national context. They were intimately linked. And so that's how I started to be a language and culture person. So I'm almost, I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm almost <laughs> done with academia. Academia, I'll summarize briefly. I graduated and then I was on faculty at Northwestern and University of Maryland at UCLA. And focused a lot on teaching and basic research, applied research, very distinct. These are all very research focused Mm. organizations, universities. And the idea of application didn't really even occur to me until pretty early on when I was teaching at UCLA and my summer funding fell through. And uh, I went online to look for job ads because I had done a lot of work during grad school supporting myself doing tech writing and also mm. editing, right? This was a way that I could call it. I, I made less than poverty level. Mm. I mean, it was so low, there, lower than poverty level. In the first tech boom in the San Francisco Bay Area, I was making so little money. So I would, I would supplement. So I went online to look and see what's there. And I found a job for a full-time job, a full-time a job ad doing cultural anthropology at a tech company that did training, language and culture training using mm-hmm. video game style technology. And so I went in and there I said, you don't need a cultural anthropologist, you need a linguistic anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to work for you full-time, I want to work for you part-time as a consultant. They were like, okay. So in a lot of respects, they were very lucky to have me sweep in. And I was very lucky because this was my first step out the door of academia into ways that I could apply my work. And so that's how I started really extra specializing in cross-cultural communication. I was already an expert in minority 
minority languages, bilingualism, and then I started really thinking about intercultural contact Mm -hmm. and diversity in that respect. Mm -hmm. And in 2011, I decided I didn't want to be in the university infrastructure anymore for a bunch of reasons, one of which is that I needed more money. I just was tired of working so hard for so little money. Mm. And also I felt frustrated that I wasn't changing the world enough. I was training people in big batches. I loved teaching my intro classes, loved it. But I felt like I would throw my amazing undergrads out into the world with this great vision of what the world was like and what it could be. And then they were being not well treated. So I was like, maybe I need to get out there and do what I can in the world. So I founded my company, Worthwhile Research and Consulting. And um, I should say explicitly that it is a it is a pun on my name. Mm-hmm. So my name is Wertheim. So the, the root is worth. It, there's worthy in there. People can't say or spell my name. But also I I was worried that I I was going to get pulled into work that wasn't going to change the world. And it was almost like a mission statement in a in mm-hmm. a company name. So I started by doing research projects in addition to the consulting work for that company. I did government-funded research projects, and this is how I started really, really working with computer scientists, working on natural language processing that I'm just going to call NLP, because natural language processing is a mouthful, and on artificial intelligence, which I'm just going to call AI. Mm -hmm. And my first, I would say my most interesting project was I headed up a social science team for a government-funded project where we looked at metaphors and cross-cultural differences in metaphors. Mm. The U.S. government decided it was interesting to figure out cultural bias in areas people didn't even recognize it it existing. And so we worked to develop natural language processing that could identify and analyze metaphors in in a certain constrained set for four different languages. And it was amazing. Mm. And this is where I first found the power of natural language processing. I, I had been trained in cognitive linguistics and in metaphor in my graduate school, but it had been very laborious to gather data. And mm. suddenly I was presented with enormous quantities of data and patterns emerged that I'd never noticed before. And so that was very exciting to me. Mm. And then that project ended and I moved up north to where I live now in Oakland, which is part of the Bay Area, just across the Bay from San Francisco, which is really a big center of tech, just, just as big as Silicon Valley. Mm. And then I, I'm not an easy drive from Silicon Valley, but if I go... yeah. Outside of rush hour, it's not terrible. And I started hearing, I would give talks and I'd be the only woman in the room. I would show up to what we call meetups, these these mm-hmm. unofficial meetings and be one of two women in the room. My partner at, was at the time an employment lawyer. And so I would go to these employment law events and I started hearing horror stories about mm-hmm. tech companies and about, oh, I don't know, all, all of these different toxic things that were happening, discrimination and harassment. And so I decided that, my consulting work really should pivot to taking my knowledge of linguistic anthropology and social science mm. and really addressing bias in the workplace. Mm. And so that's that's where I am today is spending yeah. the majority of my time working on that. Yeah. That's 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 a that's a very I would say worthwhile topic of uh, of working on. Um ah. <laughs> how how do you approach this, Suzanne? How how do you? I, it's it's a big topic, uh, and particularly I would imagine in the workplace, it can also be quite confronting. How do you approach it? it? That's a great question, and 
and one that took me quite a long time to figure out myself. I'll tell you, I approached it like an anthropologist to figure out how I would approach it like a business person. Mm. So I did field work. I leveraged connections and I started running interviews and showing up at events and thinking about things and trying to identify rather than identifying from within my own mind. Mm. Here's what I assume is going on. I interviewed white women, women of color and men of color, and went to events and read a lot of, this is also right when the first person narrative, especially on a, a publishing platform called Medium, mm. started showing up. But I had lots and lots of data to run analysis on that I was both personally connecting and that I, I could just gather online. And so I was able to identify what I saw as, um, I call them professionally, the bias hotspots. But mm. what were the biggest problems that companies were facing? And then I structured my products based on that. I feel very clever in retrospect now that I'm saying that I did that. But also what I found was that my field, linguistic anthropology, is incredibly underrepresented in mm. uh, what here we call the diversity and inclusion space, right? So people who work on diversity, inclusion, sometimes people put equity in there too, but we mm. mostly call it D&I. Yeah. And so that gave me an edge because I could go in and say, you, you've heard from psychology, organizational psychology, the, these different frameworks. Let me complement that with linguistic anthropology or even better, let me come in and do trainings that will not trigger people. Mm -hmm. So I used my years of teaching experience. I'd always been very concerned with doing a good job teaching. Mm -hmm. And so I was always reading the room, paying attention to body language. And I, I noticed something uh, already 20 years ago, a little bit more than 20 years ago when I was a teaching assistant, I, I noticed that when I would present, which just seemed like science to me, I'm like, mm -hmm. hey, here's an article. Here's like, here's a thing about gender. Here's mm -hmm. a thing about race. Here's a thing about sexuality. I would see very resistant body language. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I would hear resistant things, but in particular, I would, I would see stressed out and resistant body language. Now the sociologist Robin D'Angelo came out with a book about white fragility. So now I, I, she said, Oh, there's a term for this. This is what's going on. But I didn't know about that. And so I, I had to devise pedagogical techniques mm. and activities and ways of making things far more interactive in order to bypass those stress responses and convince people who were resistant. And so this is what I'm saying that everything's come together. If mm. you had told me that being a teaching assistant for intro sociolinguistics was going to, to play a major role in my consulting practice, I, I might have scoffed, but it really did because I, I've designed very carefully training mm. that bypasses the usual stress responses, doesn't trigger people. People don't feel blamed and shamed, which yeah. is another way that people get shut down. And I have the vocabulary of linguistic anthropology mm. I use to let people engage in anti-bias work without um, without all of those stressful words that have so much built into them yeah. that maybe accurate, but stop people from being able to have real conversations. Yeah. So can you give some yeah. examples of some of these words? Yeah, sure. I don't want to give too much away. No. Um, <laughs> let me think about, well, okay. So we were talking, we've talked before about hierarchy marking, mm. right? So this is unbelievably core to anthropology, right? And is quite central to linguistic anthropology. When I used to train, when I used to train people, 
in interlinguistic anthropology, I, I said, if you want to figure out what's going on at any speech event, here are the six things you need to know, uh, the six components you need to analyze. And, and hierarchy was always the first because it gave the most insight and was always present. Well, it turns out if you just talk about hierarchy marking and marking someone lower or higher, everyone has experienced it. So if I ask mm. a room of tech executives, which I have, so let's say I'm training a group of tech executives mm. and I say, I want you to sit for a minute and think about a time that someone marked you too low inappropriately or someone marked themselves too high inappropriately. And then let's pair and share, let's sit and talk with people about it and then report back. Everybody has had that experience mm. before they were tech execs. They were people who have been marked low in some way. And so I find that that, that kind of terminology, taking the terminology of science, emphasizing for techies the scientific nature, I will drop an academic jargon on purpose to remind them that I am coming from a very deep knowledge base mm -hmm. and they can trust me and, and use this and use this. Another thing that I like to do is um, I've coined the term culture audit. So this is ethnographic practice, right? And so I, I, I explain, I, I use a very limited scope and I'm like, surveys will only tell you so much. I, I come from a much more qualitative background. I do mixed methods work, but my leaning is always very qualitative. Mm -hmm. And so I'll say, we can interview, we can come in and interview, you know, standard anthropological mm -hmm. ethnographic interviews. But it's an interview protocol that's based on my deep research. So I'm going to get, I'm going to elicit stories that other people won't be able to because they don't know how to ask the right questions. And so I'll interview 10, 15, 20 people, either who are present or who have recently left. And because I abide by international ethics of anthropologists, I promise anonymity. Anonymity is explained. I am able to elicit stories yeah. and show patterns and problems that their own departments cannot do because there is not the safety that comes when you've got an internal investigation. It's extremely unsafe. Yeah. yeah. But when you've got a third party who promises to be an anonymizer and lays out, I don't have an IRB for these, but I, I still do standard informed consent. And then people tell me great things. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what type of um, effect does that have on what order, on what level of the group, um, That's a, that's a good question. I mean, so generally what happens is I'll, I'll write a, a report mm -hmm. that ends up with a, a set of recommendations. Yeah. So uh, I'll say something like, here are the problematic patterns I'm finding. Here are your bias hotspots. Yeah. Here's the evidence that I'm giving. And the evidence is long quotes. Mm -hmm. What I find is that, I mean, it, to be honest, your report is mostly quotes mm -hmm. because what I'm seeing is that it feels bad for an executive to read that someone in their company is having this experience, right? Mm -hmm. And there's this sort of convincingness. It's like, you might think, oh, that happened somewhere else or that that happens not in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. We're so liberal. We, we're on top of things. Everything's fine here. Um, hint, it's, mm -hmm. it's actually not true. Yeah. So I, I find that there's a, the persuasion of storytelling and direct quotes combined with academic jargon mm -hmm. and sort of a, a rigorous presentation And I, and I will come up with also a very short version that's circulatable and everything's very anonymized. So people can't say, it'll just say like, um, remote office, you know, I won't say in the office and I'll, I'll scrub vocabulary that might be identifying or I'll, I'll change a detail or two, or I'll remove gender. So people can be identified, but I, I find that it's very resonant and people will say, I read it four times and 
I can't believe this is what's happening in my company and we really need to work on fixing this. Yeah, yeah. So. Do you do you um, do you facilitate group conversations as well? I I do. What I find is that I I recommend more. I think probably I'm I'm leaving money on the table, but mm. I I like to recommend a, a workshop series that empowers people to have their own their own conversations mm-hmm. to build what I call a self-correcting culture. So instead of the idea of weaning people towards independence mm-hmm. and training people to have difficult conversations without requiring extensive handholding that that yeah. they can be able to do it themselves. And so what I like to do is is run workshops that train people uh, to be able to uh, I mean what I what I say is identify analyze and articulate the components of language that are are playing a role here or the interactional problems, right? Mm-hmm. So once people can say things like, oh, I felt like you were marking so-and-so as too low mm-hmm. when you said this thing, when you said the girls in accounting um, can take care of this, could, could you stop saying girls? That's a different conversation than coming to somebody and saying, you're, you're completely sexist. You use sexist behavior all the time. You say these sexist things and people feel demeaned and they feel triggered. If I can train people, all of those things may be true, right? Mm. But they're not facilitative of actually engendering change at the organizational level or at the interpersonal level. So I work very carefully for that. And I, I do facilitate conversations and I facilitated conversations as part of workshops. But very honestly, my goal is to set people up to have yeah. their own conversations. Yeah, yeah. Do you find that this type of uh, biases also travel into the area of product development? Which kind of bias? I mean, obviously, yes. Yeah. Which, which kind of bias? The, the ones that you just kept uh, were talking about regarding the, the type of work that you do, you know, like gender bias, uh, hierarchy bias too. Do, do, do companies also come to you uh, to see how this travels into products and how it could maybe build products that are not inclusive enough? Not yet. This is an area I'm I'm working right now. A big chunk of 2019 is going to be spent working on how to scale up my company mm-hmm. because I have a goal of <laughs> I, I like things to be multifunctional. I like them to be win-win-win. Mm-hmm. I, I worked for years between, so I was just talking about my time in technology. I definitely had grad students. A lot of my grad students went straight through. And in the US, Academia is crumbling in on itself in a lot of ways. Since the time when I started, there was an expectation that everyone who came out of my department was extremely prestigious. There was an expectation that not only would everyone get, everyone who wrote a good dissertation would get a good job and it would be at a top tier university. Now I'm at a point where people from UCLA, which is it could mm-hmm. not be any higher ranked for linguistic anthropology. There is no higher institution you could get a degree from are still in adjunct positions or non-tenure track positions. So I'm thinking, can I create a home Mm -hmm. for people who still want to do good in the world and apply their linguistic anthropology expertise, but in a a different framework, in one that's more applied? Mm -hmm. And so for that, I think that I need to do a certain kind of product expansion, right? So one thing I'm doing is I'm collecting a lot of data on uh, how bias shows up in products, Mm -hmm. sort of, I think there are two ways that I see it showing up. The first is almost like a reverse engineering analysis or like an inductive reasoning. Mm -hmm. If the product has come out in this format, clearly the team is not sufficiently diverse. Yeah. Right. 
So that's one of the biggest things. And I collect those kinds of areas, those kinds of things. And I use them in my more general training. So like if I train all the managers in a company or if I train an entire company, I'm training the product development people, right? Mm -hmm. So that's already in there. The other thing is when you're sure that the, the product team has bias built into its interactions and mm-hmm. things like career velocity, who gets the stretch assignments, who gets the high visibility work. I have some I have some examples of product bias if if you'd like to hear yeah, or I'd like love some to things hear that, that. I, that concern me. Yeah. I think I define technology more broadly than most of the people that I work with. I, I think if I say to people, I, I focus on tech. I work on diversity, inclusion, and tech. People make a lot of assumptions about that. Mm. But because I, I collect all these examples of bias, I, I think I have a much more broad definition of technology than people do in this ecosystem that I'm in. So I'll give you an example. The, the other day I posted on LinkedIn and Twitter, I posted, I, I find that I, I use them for education all the time, right? So mm. I'll see an article and I'll add a brief commentary the way many people do. Mm-hmm. It's my way of educating in, in this public space all the time. Mm. And so there was an article in the New York Times about how cosmetics companies do not serve the darkest skin consumers. In mm-hmm. fact, for some of them, not even the darkest skin, just darker skin. Yeah. And so I posted a thing and I'm like, so we may not think of cosmetics as technology, but it is they're absolutely designed by scientists. There's absolutely a product development and product management process the way that there is for other sort of more computer-based technology. They're very technological with very rigorous standards and quality assurance and everything. And so if there are all of these companies that are showing systematic bias mm-hmm. by not creating products for their consumers, what does that tell us about the money they're willing to leave on the table, who their teams are? And then also for the cosmetics, there was a more obvious tech component because there are women in particular and some men who make their money on YouTube by doing cosmetics tutorials yeah. or showing people how the how the cosmetics work. You know, um, they're showing a haul, they're showing swatches. Well, how are you going to come up with new videos if there aren't cosmetics that work on your face the way that they do for your white competitors, mm-hmm. right? So there's this whole ecosystem there that comes in. There are, and in some respects, I, I think I'm trying to find ways to help people understand how linguistic anthropology plays a role, but the medium of language is always there. For example, the names of some of these cosmetics were seen as insulting or demeaning. I watched some of the videos of these bloggers mm-hmm. and they talked a lot about what the cosmetics were called. And they're like, you're calling this rich? Where are the six shades below it? You know, or they, they had other, there's other language that they thought was questionable. Mm-hmm. There's a camera a few years ago and it's a Japanese brand. So it feels ironic. Mm-hmm. But when, I'm, I'm not sure if you saw that, but when Asian, so it had um, sort of like mistake prompting technology built in. So if somebody blinked, the idea was that there would be some sort of facial recognition software and that it would recognize when someone had blinked and then it would give a prompt to the yeah. user on the display screen before everyone just used their phones. And it would say, oh, it looks like someone blinked. Do you want to try that again? Mm-hmm. Well, it was consistently recognizing smiling Asian faces as mistakes and prompting Mm-hmm. This looks like a mistake. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I have so many examples of this. And so there are ways, I mean, there are webcams or uh, that don't follow blacker faces that only follow whiter faces. There are sinks that only turn on for lighter skinned hands. Mm-hmm. There is facial recognition technology that codes black women as male. Yeah. There's facial recognition technology for Google that codes black people as yeah. gorillas. 
literally yeah. put the word gorilla mm. in people's faces. And so I'm working on, I already have a workshop on how to create more inclusive communication materials like marketing mm-hmm. because there are big marketing fails both in tech and, and elsewhere. But this is definitely an area that I, I'm keeping track of and, and looking to expand into. Yeah, I think it's really nice that you are um, thinking about that because I think there's so much need in all of these spaces for more broader conversations about that. And if you look at some products, like the way they kind of influence or also inform like really normative uh, ways of, of, of being, um, and particularly to kids and to young people. So it's they have a lot of power, these products, you know? So uh, there's also a lot and, of responsibility. Would, absolutely. And also... I mean, yes, there's, well, I mean, we could talk about tech ethics for the rest of the day. I'm sitting an easy driving distance of Facebook, for example, which is engulfed in yet another scandal. Um, ethics is deeply concerning where I am. But the thing I want to say is that another thing that I like to incorporate in my training is the bias that comes from when when people either aren't listened to because they're not seen as important enough to be listened to, or the bias that comes from well, I guess it's sort of the same thing. What, what I think of as like technical bias. So what I find in a lot of product development, for example, there's a startup company I was advising and uh, they have since folded and they had a product that was a little bit softer, a lot more human interaction in it. But they had a, a head of engineering who was really insistent that the product development agenda be his agenda and the client facing people were seen as lower prestige because they weren't, you know, quote unquote, technical, even though they had a lot of deep knowledge about what their clients wanted. And maybe they had knowledge about that particular space where this tech product was entering. And these people would say to me, I did a culture audit for that company. And then I made recommendations. And I had a lot of people saying to me, our, our products moving further and further from what mm-hmm. our clients want. I'm worried about our future. And they weren't listened to. And a lot of them were women. And I, I think there's, you know, it's not a coincidence that technical and hard and masculine and listened to all kind of group up in certain ways. They, they sort of bunch in a cluster, but it doesn't mean that that's the best way for things to go. Mm. And so it, it doesn't even necessarily mean that this bias product, the, the product that comes out with the bias baked in. I mean, I think there's some health app for the iPhone that had incredibly detailed things about like running intervals and didn't even have a a menstrual tracker, Mm, right? Yeah. Like super, super basic women's health stuff, like the most basic for women of a certain age. And it wasn't even there. Whereas there was this very like hack your sleep, you know, like there were all of these like very high end advanced things. And it doesn't even necessarily mean what I say is that it doesn't Mm. necessarily mean that there weren't women on the team or that there weren't Asians on the team or there weren't black people on the team, although that's also highly possible. Mm -hmm. But it may mean that they didn't feel psychologically safe. Yes. That they weren't listened to, that they brought things up and they were not listened to. And this is Mm -hmm. where... Exactly. Silenced mm-hmm. or ignored or there was an uptake. And so or, or or they didn't feel safe. I mean, you know, silenced in all kinds of ways. And this is where linguistic anthropology really is at the core, where, where I say, how do you like the best way to make sure that you don't have bias built into your product is to have not only diverse teams. So there are multiple perspectives, mm-hmm. but also have inclusive teams so that if somebody sees a problem coming down the road, they're able to talk about it and they're listened to. Um, It's shocking to me how often that very basic communicative failure takes place, but, but it really does. Mm, Yes. Yes. 
And and it's it's you know it could be that in a, in a space of a workshop you have the rationality to kind of acknowledge rationally some of these biases, but then when you go back into your day to day in the in the normal interactions, that thing is very difficult to uh, go past. You know. Oh yeah, especially yeah. if there's time pressure. Mm-hmm. So. Another thing that I work with companies to do is is set up what I call bias interrupters. Mm-hmm. So you and I are extremely well aware that bias and many human patterns are systematic and structural. And there's habitus, not to go to Bourdieu, but I just did, mm-hmm. right? And there, there are all of these ways that things are set up structurally. Um, in the U.S. in particular, and, and I do work with global companies, but they tend to have U.S. headquarters. So there's a, a lot of American bias and how they think even uh, anti-bias things should be run, right? In the U.S. in particular, we are remarkably individualistic. There is this incredible ideology of rugged individualism and this complete rewriting of the narrative of the country's founding that takes away so many structural and systematic things that happened in so many ways to indigenous peoples in terms of chattel slavery, in terms Mm -hmm. of women as chattel, in terms of Western settlement, but also in terms of company welfare. I mean, there are just so many ways that systems aren't visible. And so what happens is when people are trying to sort of fight for anti-bias work, if you haven't changed the structures and created interrupters or said, here's a thing that we need to change the structure of, Mm -hmm. they end up with a, a certain kind of cognitive fatigue or decision fatigue or pressure. So I I talked to an an executive for a company. He's such a nice person and he's really very engineering, right? Mm -hmm. Such an engineer and he's in research and development. So he's really like solidly what you would think of as like very techie. And he had a thing that happened where he had to, a thing happened that was sort of like, okay, within a month, these two very high visibility things have to happen. And for both of them, people pointed out as as he was putting a team together to do it, and there was going to be a very high visibility product that had a lot of, like a video, right, mm-hmm. that would have a lot of a large public and could go beyond the original public because it, it probably would be made public, right? So who were the intended publics would be very broad. And and people said to him, okay, you've, you've cast the video and you've cast this, and you've put together the team and it's all white guys. And that I feel really bad. This is a, a subordinate felt comfortable enough saying to him. And he said to me, I felt so guilty because my first response was, I don't have time to think about diversity right now. I barely have time to get this done to a mediocre level of quality, let alone a high level of quality. Right. Hmm. And so he felt really guilty and bad. And I said, I understand. I was like, and that's why we have to work to change the structures in your company, right? To make it so that diversity is already baked in. And you don't have to think extra because when you cast the video or when you think of like, who are my three engineering directors I want on that, you've already got a diverse bunch of people to choose from. You don't have to do a lot of extra work for that. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I think people are very, very, very slowly coming to understand is sort of a a benefit and necessary. I have a thing that I need someone to hire someone to cross stitch, which I say all the time, which is I Mm -hmm. I need a cross stitch hanging behind me that says... I, I, I like I like um, taking feminine arts and uh, displaying them, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I want to cross stitch that says short term harder, long term better, because I think that's true in so many ways. Building a company, building a team, building a product. If you hacking doesn't bring great results, and if you take the time to do it a little bit harder but a little mm-hmm. bit better up front, the payoff later is it may not even take that long for later to come, but the payoff is ongoing and and really enormous. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think I think also trust is built through all these numerous little acts of um, allowing people to be themselves and to show up and to talk from their own perspective and culture. And yeah, I think it's 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 very often that you see these things in presented in PowerPoint or motivational videos or meetings, but then you come back to your normal life and in those normal daily acts and in those daily activities, you become invisible again. You know. Yes. And, and that's why I think um, some of the most important things that have to happen in tech mm. companies and elsewhere is, I, I talked about building a self-correcting culture, is you need psychological safety so people feel like they can say things. You very, very much need ally work mm. where um, uh, there's, there's a lot of, well, not a lot of research, there's enough research to convince yeah. me. Yeah. Um, that shows that when people advocate for their own group, mm. they are penalized. And if you advocate for not your own group, then you're not penalized, mm. right? So if you are a woman and you say, hey, I keep on seeing this happening with people of color in this company, right? You know, I noticed that they're getting promoted at lower rates or I noticed this thing happened or people keep on touching this woman's hair, right? So let's say you're a black woman and someone's touching your hair. This is still quite common. I did not realize how common it was, but in the U.S., this is still quite common. And, and it's, to my mind, evidence that black women in particular are not seen as fully human mm -hmm. because petting is something you do to someone who's not fully human, right? To your adorable fluffy cat, but not to another human being. You don't pet them. And so a black woman already has a lot of strikes against her in the bias game where if she says anything, there's already in the U.S. an excellent chance that even if she uses a very calm tone of voice and even if she is um, very logical and very quiet and is very compassionate in her speech, that she still will see, be seen as angry, as hysterical, as overly emotional and be penalized uh, in certain ways, especially when it comes to performance reviews and compensation. Performance reviews are another place that you can do a, a bias audit using linguistic anthropology and go through and find systematically the ways that, particularly around gender, people are being evaluated and described differently. Uh, women are often penalized for things that men are, are lauded for. So with, with the black woman example, you need someone to step in who is not a black woman. Mm. And so you need, when someone's being silenced, when someone is being demeaned, when somebody's being marked as lower, when someone is being aggressed upon, when someone is is not being treated fairly, unfairness hurts. Yeah. Injustice hurts. Mm. The Germans, bless their hearts, have uh, the words for everything. And back when I was still writing academic work, I was going to write a book on comedy, L.A. comedy. And uh, there was this incredible sadness I found among L.A. comedians that was much like my Tatars in Russia. And I thought, what's this sadness? And, and the Germans have this word, which is Weltschmerz, which is world pain. Mm. The pain you feel when you see and feel the gap between the world the way it's supposed to be mm -hmm. and the world the way it actually is. Mm. And we need allies to help bridge that gap and not just the people who are, are stuck in the way the world, the way the world actually is. It can't be only people on the receiving end of bias fighting the fight. It has to yeah. be everybody. Yeah. It. So. Yeah. That's uh, Suzanne. I want. I would love to continue to talk about this this bias, but I wanna. I, I wanna ask you a little bit about your transition from academia to this space as well. For those of our listeners that are kind of contemplating a similar path, um, what type of, of advice would you give them? Because these are also very very different worlds. Um, 
contemplating that choice? Well, what do you need to keep in mind? I go and give talks to academics who are thinking about leaving. Hmm. This is something I think about a lot. There are a few things. The first is, and I will tell you that I came from a space where I was very socialized to think about my career, my value in a certain way. And that was basic research, top tier universities. Applied research was lesser. Applied work was lesser. So one thing is to, I would say the first thing is to, I mean, there's a lot of bias built into that, is to expose yourself to other discourses and other ways of being. Mm-hmm. You can re-educate yourself and re-socialize yourself. And luckily now, it wasn't this way, even when I was thinking about leaving academia, not even 10 years ago, there's so much more of a wealth of resources online where you can read Mm. people write first person tales about here's what it's like when I left, here's what I did. I mean, there's just lots of information out there. I would also recommend small scale, low stakes moves towards the world of applied work. So for me, it was... Um, my summer research funding fell through. That was like a real blessing in disguise. I was horrified. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it it made me be innovative. And then I ended up at that tech company, consulting with them for years on end. And that led me to the next step of doing full-time work with them and people like them. Mm-hmm. And that led me to founding my own company. And so you don't even know where the smallest things are, but I would say finding spaces to consult finding spaces to even don't be afraid to give away some expertise for free, not forever, especially women. Be careful for that. People will ask you to do free work all the time, but there's no reason why you can't do something for free and then talk about it later. Like it wasn't free. Just Mm. leave out the fact that you didn't get paid for it. There's no reason why you can't build a portfolio or expertise through volunteering without Mm -hmm. telling people that it was volunteer. And in the U S at least, I'll be in Europe in a few weeks and and catch up on my friends who are academics who have transitioned out, anthropologists. So I'll know more then. But in the U.S. at least, there are these informal groups through Meetup or or other areas. In particular, there's an online platform called Meetup. And you can just search and search and search and show up. All you're losing is your time. And you can just meet people and network and network and do informational interviews and just say to people, I have people every two months probably – I talk to somebody who's finishing up their dissertation and they say, can I have coffee? And I'll talk to them and just tell them what my path was. So yeah, talking to people and networking. Yeah. How how does the academic space see your work right now? Do do they find it um, a good contributor to to your knowledge base? I'm going to say yes for some and mostly no. For example, I haven't been on my old department's website for some time, but they list alums and it's scrubbed. It is only alums who go into academic work. Hmm. So I was on there when I had prestigious university positions, and I was removed when I started my own company. But the American Anthropological Association was just a few weeks ago nearby in San Jose, and I had some of my favorite former grad students put together a panel. So I was like, eh, I'll go down. Mm -hmm. The last time I had gone, it was on a panel on applied work that was very ill-attended, even though it had filled with great people, really great people. So, but those conferences schedule people at bad times anyway. Mm. And there was a lot more about applied work at this year's anthropological meetings than the previous year. So I, I think in some respects, anthropology is coming to terms with the fact that the tenure track system is broken and 
you can train anthropologists who then go out in the world and use their expertise and do good work. So maybe it's start time time to start connecting industry with PhD programs. But I, I think that is the minority, the vast minority right now. Yeah, yeah. It still has some ways to go, right? Yeah, and mm -hmm. I'll tell you that I actually also do research. So part of the way I'm scaling up the company is by doing collaborative research on government, usually government-funded research grants, because those tend to be large-scale, collaborating with other PhDs. Right now I've got two grants in the hopper and two grant proposals in the hopper. Um, one of them is from the National Science Foundation. And it's funny because they pay very poorly. Other funding agencies understand that people have to pay overhead. Mm -hmm. The NSF study has a research position and is already funded. And this is just to give them maybe a course leave, right? So in some respects, uh, there's a real limit to how much I can participate in that project. But there's a lot of American government funded work where I collaborate with computer scientists working on natural language processing, working on artificial intelligence, and those generate academic papers. I find that computer science in particular is very open to a, a more of a porosity between mm -hmm. what is quote-unquote academic and what is quote-unquote industry. Yeah. People go back and forth all the time. I find that anthropology is almost not porous at all, yeah. but I, I still do academic work and publish academic papers. So Wow, that that's great. And what about um, the industry itself? Like if, if companies are interested in, in approaching more social scientists or, or even linguistic anthropologists, How would you advise them to to do that? Like, what would be a nice, easy way in? <laughs> I mean, I think it's one of the hardest questions, but and mm -hmm. I, I imagine this is something that you have to deal with a lot in your own professional life. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like a lot of my time doing business development is spent educating. And, and I think that the best advice I would have for companies thinking about hiring social scientists is to be willing to have a series of conversations mm -hmm. so you can triangulate and, and find the space where value can be added in a way that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So now people understand that you need ethnography for user design, mm -hmm. you know, for design and for, for user experience work. And people understand the role of ethnography and in marketing or, or other ways, but, but there's still all kinds of ways that social science can provide and anthropology can provide lots and lots of value. So I, I honestly think that if companies are just willing to, to talk to people like me, we can have maybe even just two conversations and then start with small projects, get proven value and then add from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is great. Susanna, thank you so much. Um, it's been a pleasure listening to you so far. I'm very, very aware that we've gone a, a little bit past our initial um, time allocation. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, th th thank you so much for being with us tonight. And maybe we bring you on a, a different episode to, to go more into depth uh, between this intersection of these two worlds, because yeah. I, I think it's a fascinating subject. And I think that we need to maybe spend more time digging into it specifically, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be delighted to talk more about it. I'll tell you that tomorrow I've got a meeting with somebody, CEO mm. of a startup, who's working on anti-bias natural language processing. Nice. And so we may set up a collaboration. So it may be, um, it may work, it may not. 
But people are even bringing these things together. My worlds are even further colliding where now natural language processing is moving into the diversity and inclusion space. So I may have even more to talk about then, but it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And I'm so glad you do this podcast. And I'm really grateful that you invited me to speak. I'm very happy to have been talking with you tonight. Thank you, Suzanne. And for our listeners, we're going to put uh, the link to to Suzanne's work in the description of the episode so you can go and read more about this awesome lady and awesome work that she's doing. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.